0: This podcast was brought to you by the Mind Foundation, that's M-I-N-D-D, who help practitioners and patients discover and implement effective treatments for metabolic, immunologic, neurologic, digestive and developmental conditions, which often affect the mind. This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today from Dallas, Texas is Dr. Brandon Brock. Brandon, I think you must have started your education at age three. Brandon is a certified (laughs) chiropractor, family nurse practitioner and a functional neurology diplomat with multiple clinical interests including functional integrative neurology, nutrition, wellness and general medicine. His clinical time is spread amongst three practices in Dallas, Texas. Along with being a clinician, Dr. Brock has a passion for lecturing and helping to improve clinical skills for medical doctors, nurse practitioners, chiropractors and everything in between in a way that is easy to digest, comprehend and most importantly, to utilise in clinic. He has developed thousands of multidisciplinary hours of curriculum pertaining to neurology, nutrition, physical diagnosis, pharmacology, immunology and endocrinology. Dr. Brock is currently a lecturer at the Academy of Osteopathic Science and vice president of the International Association of Functional Neurology and Rehabilitation. And a board member of the American Academy of Integrative Medicine. He was recently chosen as a member of the Council of Human Function and has been an expert on TAP Integrative. Dr. Brock received the most outstanding Functional Neurology Teacher of the Year from the ACA Council of Neurology four years straight and two times from IAFNR. Recently, Dr. Brock received the Humanitarian Award as a result of his research on injured military veterans with PTSD and traumatic brain injury. He is also the honorable recipient of the prestigious Living Legacy Award from Sanford University's Ida Moffat School of Nursing in 2015, and was also recently named the spotlight student of his doctoral program at Duke University. He holds diplomat status in neurology, conventional medicine, nutrition, integrative medicine, and a fellowship from the International College of Chiropractors as well as the American Chiropractic Neurology Board. Currently, Dr. Brock is working to receive recognition as a global clinical research scholar at Harvard Medical School and concurrently completing a doctorate of nursing practice from Duke University. Dr. Brock, welcome to FX Medicine. What have you oh, done in your life? Here, <laughs>
1: uh, I, I had an intervention this, uh, this Christmas. My family sat me down and said, no more school, man. I said, all right. So, uh, I so here, say, we, here
0: we are. Because you've got, is it three or four kids?
1: I got two kids that are mine. I've got two great kids that are my wife's. So we we, we, we've almost got a basketball team. Right?
0: Yeah. That's a lot of juggling, and I think a lot of that we'd we'd take our hats off to Tara, your wife. uh, Yes, she's
1: great. She's my my public relations person.
0: That's right. Indeed, you say that she's (laughs) the one who grounds you, as my wife does me. So (laughs) your qualification spans two professions, nursing chiropractic. So chiropractic came first. You're you're finishing off your nursing now, is that right?
1: Yeah, you know, I started out and graduated from chiropractic college in 98 from Parker, and went back and I just you know I was like yeah, I'm fascinated with medicine and I love that part of it and and never and by the way never lost my fire for chiropractic but I went back and became a registered nurse and then I became a nurse practitioner and then I said you know I might as well get a doctorate degree in nurse practitioner you know in, in nursing so I decided to do that and and then I thought well you know I like research so I went back and did some some work and research and you know finishing that up too so it's just it's kind of all really believe it or not, molded together into uh, you know good biomechanics and the neurology that controls biomechanics and the nutrition that helps amplify it and the medication that everybody takes, and then trying to figure out some ways that are that are you can either implement this in research science or maybe figure out something that's efficacious if you're lucky and do really good research. so, it's, I, it's been, uh, I've been blessed. It's been a long journey, but uh, you know the journey goes on and on and on and on. It never stops. So mm. I've accepted that fact and, and really love
0: it. So what prompted you to specialize? And I say that word loosely because you've got a diverse range of interests, endocrinology, immunology, pharmacology. But what, what prompted you to specialize in neuroscience? What was the interest?
1: You know, it, for me it was, uh, well, first of all, I think the brain is just the coolest thing. You it, know, it's not... It's so multidimensional, but I I had a head injury. And you know, when you get an injury yourself you become interested because you get a lot of opinions and a lot of the opinions don't matter and I, I just you know, I had a real simple injury but nobody could really figure it out. So I thought, you know, I'm just gonna go learn a little bit about neurology and one thing spun into another and the next thing you know you're you're teaching neurology classes and it, it that's kind of really, so it, it's self-interest, but yeah. the self-interest turned into what can I do for other students and other doctors and stuff like that. So that's kind of how it started.
0: You know, this is something that greatly interests me because, you know, as a registered nurse myself, you learn about a diverse array of, of disease states. But I see this so often that once somebody is personally affected by it, their, their interest hones. And it hones not just the pathophysiology, but also the care of that um, condition. And they become themselves a true expert. I've seen this time and time again. I, I get that there would be those out there that just say, somebody else look after me, I couldn't be bothered. But I take my hat off to you and any practitioner that has a particular need to delve further into any um you know disease state and and that that expresses in the care of others so I'll thank you for the profession from FX medicine you've also got an avid interest though in physical diagnosis for our listeners I'll, I'd urge them to take a look at um drbrocklectures.com and definitely what I learned a lot from you is your youtube videos um, so you know start with dr what is it brock exam video 1 <laughs> and go from there <laughs> just search that
1: well you know dr dr brock lectures is one of those uh projects that's going to be developed a lot in 2017 um i also do uh functional neurology seminars.com with dr karazian which is really a great great project that has great recordings great playbacks great transcripts great notes and, and really good research uh you know components where people can pull papers and stuff so i done a couple of projects. It's really hard to do with school, but as soon as school's done, there's going to be a lot of writing and stuff like that next year. But, you know, I really believe in the physical exam because, you know, we live in a society now where the physical exam is being cut down to virtually no time at all. There's a lot of advanced diagnostics that are being done. And I think that clinical intuition is really lost without a physical exam. And that clinical intuition, I think, turns into so many really valid treatment plans. And it really catches a lot of things. And it it's, it's a dying art that I do not want to see die. So I spend a lot of time on really making sure that at least my students get some clinical nuggets out of the physical exam. And I got to tell you, it pays off. I get a lot of feedback about that. I'm glad you asked that and said that because that physical exam stuff is so important to really formulating Whatever kind of treatment plan you're, you know, you're into, whether it's medicine or nutrition or, yeah. or functional neurology or chiropractic,
0: I totally agree with you. It's it's a, a thing that's lost on the machine that goes bing, and that's a, a leftover dinosaur from the Monty Python era. So it's still happening, <laughs> in, indeed more so. Can I just get for our listeners? So it's functionalneurologyseminars.com. dot com. Yeah. Now you're coming to Australia in May 2017 for the Mind Conference. What will you I be sure speaking Can't on wait. there?
1: you know it's going to be a lot of stuff on looking at kids and looking at neurodevelopmental aspects and all the things that goes along with it you know the gut brain axis the brain immune axis the functional nor- neurological exam and, and some hands on skills that people can learn and then a lot of nutrition and then i really want to go over some of the pharmacology too so that caregivers parents uh can really be informed on how they work if they work when they're good when they're bad when one thing should be used versus another so i think that we've really put together a, a program that is super diversified uh really really all-inclusive and, and encompassing and i'm just going to pull out everything i can to to give to the people of australia you know this be the second time i've got to lecture in australia and, and I've got to say, I've lectured all over the world, and you know, a lot of people say these kinds of things. But Australia has really been the top of my, so it was one of my favorite places to go. The Australians were so nice, so receptive, so polite, and really eager to learn. And of course, that's a that's a lecturer's dream come true whenever you can have an audience like that. But this Mind Conference, I'm I'm really excited about it because it's got all kinds of practitioners that come to it, so you don't have to cater to one group you can really let everything out and say, you know what, we're just going to talk about things the way they are. And that is medicine is a reality. Nutrition is a reality. Chiropractic is a reality. Disease is a reality. What are we going to do to integrate these things and make practitioners look through multiple lenses so that they can help some of these children that are growing up? And, I, you know, if you look at the rate of childhood developmental disorders, it is way on the rise. Yeah. You guys know this. yeah. So how are we going to cure this? There's not going to be a magic pill. I really don't think there's going to be a magic solution. It's going to it's going to boil down to really trained practitioners that can look at this from so many different angles that they don't miss things and they see that these conditions are a collage of problems and you have to be able to fix more than one thing to get a, a really a good result.
0: Yeah. So, you know, there's been a lot of work with the microbiota. Knowing that you've got a crosstalk happening there, gut-brain, what about brain-gut? Which is controlling which? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, it's really tough to say, and I I always start with, you know, kind of which symptoms started first and so forth. I mean, if I have somebody that had a head injury, and now their hypothalamic system has changed, all their endocrine systems changed, and their vagal output has changed, and their brainstem has changed, then I know that vagal system has really altered the amount of stomach acid they're producing. So maybe they're having bacterial overgrowth. Or maybe they don't have good digestive enzymes being produced because it's so reliant on vagal input to have good output. Or maybe their inflammatory system is altered because their splenic cytokines have been altered from that vagal system. Or maybe, just maybe, they have a detoxification error now because their P450 system is altered from that vagal output. Or maybe the blood flow to their gut is not good because they don't have good vagal supply and now they're having a breakdown of the mucosal lining and they're starting to get either a leaky gut or they're getting oral intolerance. I mean, when you look at the absolute vast amount of literature that's out there on what the brain does to the gut, you could go through so many systems and really look at it and say, you know what, it pays to have a good brain. And if and if you don't have a good brain and that gut starts to get unhealthy and it starts to get leaky and it makes more inflammation and that inflammation gets systemic. It's going to go right back to the brain that caused it and make it worse. So it's really a brain-gut, gut-brain loot. So I always ask my patients, hey, what happened to you? And they're like, you know what? I started out with stomach pain, and I've had it for years, and now my brain's fogged. Or they may say, you know what? I had a head injury, and now my gut's been completely decimated. And that's one of the beautiful things about the physical exam and the history. And I consider the history part of the physical exam. You go through that and you can figure out which place to start first and you can make humongous changes in the outcome of a patient's reality and life by just knowing where to start.
0: In a previous podcast, we've um, spoken to Emerus Goldsworthy, who took our listeners through some incredible research and some skills regarding vagal nerve stimulation. What sort of things do you do? You know, like he was mentioning things like prolonged gargling, what sort of other things do you do to help vagal nerve stimulation? Uh, there's so many different things we can do. And I know you've heard this, but,
1: you know, anything from lower cranial nerve stimulation, gargling, corneal blink reflexes, there's different types of uh, electrodes that we can surgically implant in the ear that can make stimulation occur. Yep. There's true vagal stimulators that actually wrap around the vagus itself. that can be stimulating. Um different types of meditation techniques, different types of frontal lobe techniques. I, I think I have a list, actually, of 32 different ways to stimulate the vagal oh system so that you can get the effects that you're wanting. And I, and I got to tell you, man, when people get injured, they get sympathetically dominant. Their parasympathetic system may or may not be breaking down. It kind of depends on what happens with the brain. But we have been so effective with head pain, with post-traumatic head pain. And with gut recovery, with just vestibular and parasympathetic stimulation, uh, it's it's really fascinating. I think the world of research needs to look at the efficacy. And that's a big word yeah. in research.
2: Yeah.
1: They, it, you know, The world of research needs to look at the efficacy of some of these outside sort of considered eccentric techniques and, and, and look at them a little bit more closely instead of just saying, you know what? These things are crazy. They don't exist. And everybody's just imagining things. There's too many good practitioners that are doing it and seeing results for this to be imagined. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, we, you know, if you guys ever wanted a list of those parasympathetic exercises, we can make those available, and they've actually been published uh, in a systematic review. So it's it's not like it's just my work. This is the work of other people too. So it's really cool.
0: Yeah, it, it blew my mind when I I started learning about this. I was just It was one of those blink moments when you're sort of, how could you be doing this, Andrew? (laughs) How could you not have paid this attention? Now, we don't have anywhere near the time to delve into all of the information you'll be presenting at the MIND conference, but can you give us a sort of brief overview of what sort of topics you'll be covering so that clinicians can get an idea of what benefits they'll take away from attending the MIND conference?
1: Well, I think one of the good things is it caters towards and again I, I kind of alluded to this earlier so I don't want to be repetitive but it's it's going to be geared towards a bunch of different types of practitioner types. So if you're a naturopath or a nutritionist, you're going to get a lot of nutrition for brain and I'm going to cater it towards what can you do for cellular health, you know, mitochondrial damage, cellular membrane damage, how can you clean out a cell through autophagy? What can you do to increase, you know, connections between one cell and another? Uh, you know, what can you do to augment various neurotransmitters? And even better, what can you do to recognize a neurotransmitter system that may be failing? Because the tests out there are really not good. There's there's some urinary tests out there that have proven to be not so fantastic. But really, just knowing the way your patient is reacting, you can hmm. look at those things. So we're going to look at the chemistry and then I'm really going to offer a good hands-on moment where we get to go there and say hey look here is some some simple hands-on things that you can do to do physical exam stuff and then what can you do about them if you find you know different scenarios. So I think that that is the kind of thing that people want. You know, they want things they can take back to their clinic on Monday yep. or Tuesday or whatever day they go back and say I can immediately apply this stuff whether it be primitive reflex stuff or you know, brain reflex activity, or, you know, I'm even going to talk about a a little bit about transcranial laser stuff. There's so many things that I'm going to go through and try to cater a little bit towards everybody so that, you know, I'm not just opining to one group. Um, That's at least that's the goal, you Mm. know, And that you you can talk about that stuff and there's only so much time, but putting it together, I think we'll do it in a way that's masterful and, and give it you know, to where everybody can appreciate
2: it.
0: Yeah. The Mind Conference obviously specializes in in kids and adults, but people with behavioral type (laughs) disorders. What are the challenges that you face with physical examination of particularly kids with behavioral disorders like ADHD, autism, autism spectrum disorder, which isn't recognized now in DSM, Um, but um, because it's cost saving. (laughs) Um, But what what, did, what challenges do you have to, to hurdle over?
1: Well, I think you nailed it right there, and that is number one. Some of these things aren't even recognized. They, you know, It's just, hey, bad kid, be a better parent. Um, but really, I think uh, you know, we, we do specialize a little bit in kids with autoimmune encephalitic conditions, meaning they have an autoimmune condition to their brain, so it mimics a lot of stuff. Hmm. It may mimic a neuropsychiatric condition, It may mimic somebody with autistic traits, Um, and I'm going to really dissect that apart and give some really good research, and there's not a lot of research out there, but there is some decent research out there, and I'm going to go through how you would diagnose some of these autoimmune conditions versus pure genetic conditions versus developmental conditions and behavioral conditions so that parents and lay people, along with practitioners, can be able to look at a child and say, this behavior is resembling something that looks like autoimmunity or this is, you know, resembling something that looks like, you know, a a developmental trait because of their environment or this is something that looks genetic. It needs to be evaluated that way. So I think that one thing I want everybody to be able to take away from a diagnostic perspective is the direction that you go with a diagnosis and then that will lead you in the direction of treatment. And that is the most important thing Uh, Again, I'm a big diagnosis guy. Without a good diagnosis, you have absolutely no idea which direction to go for treatment. Uh,
0: Indeed, just helping, if you like, that track of diagnosis, what really interested me, what really piqued my interest recently was that they've only just discovered a lymphatic system of the brain, something that they thought never existed before. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how this might play into the possibility of infections causing these sorts of symptoms in kids.
1: Well, that's a great question. And what we're finding is this um, infections create inflammation, and the inflammatory system controls, in part, the ability of the lymphatic system to, pro- you know, to function appropriately, not just mm-hmm. in the body, but in the brain. Yep. They, they found so much stuff recently. They found giant neurons that wrap around the entire cerebral hemispheres and connect them. I mean, oh. we're discovering all kinds of, of cool stuff, but lymphatic systems work based upon an inflammatory cytokine sort of systematic process. Now, one of the things that happens is you get lymphatic alterations with inflammation, and you have to because that's part of the inflammatory process. So whenever we control inflammatory cytokines like two, like TNF-alpha or, or the inter, the, any of the interleukins that create inflammation, we're going to talk about nutritional protocols that can defeat those things because really the medications that are used, are really really rough on the gastric system or the you know the gastrointestinal system and breaks down the mucosal layer if used too long, and they can be nephrotoxic. So you know you end up with kidney pathology or something like that. Other types of medications uh, or, or, or substances that are used to stop pain, of course, are toxic to the liver. So we really want to talk about maybe some natural compounds that really control the cells of the brain that make inflammation so that you don't have it, so that you don't get stagnation and lymphatic flow or even regular blood flow or cerebrospinal fluid flow. See, all these things can happen. And if they don't flow appropriately, then you end up getting neurological damage or or a decrease in function. So going through this inflammatory cascade and mechanisms is going to be super important for any practitioner. It doesn't matter what your degree is. If you really want to do your best with some of these children or even adults, you need to understand these mechanisms. And, I, and I'm really excited to go through what we've, what we've uncovered as we go through the literature. And, you know, really it's, a, there's like 4,500 research papers going into this conference. Wow. Um, and that took a long time to compile and put together and read and then quilt together in something that means something from a clinician point of view.
0: Yeah. Now you've got an avid interest in pharmacology. So uh-huh. I've got to ask what, uh, uh, rather than saying the top three, what do you think are some of the most important drug-nutrient interactions which clinicians need to know about? Indeed, what about nutrient-nutrient interactions with regards to behavioural disorders?
1: Uh, well, yeah, you know, I, I got to make a plug real quick, and I, I get nothing from this, but NaturalMedicines dot com yeah. is the best place to go to find these. I just wanted to throw that out there because. A lot of people are looking for resources. They have no idea where to go look That's where I go to look for some of my interactions. And, you know, I'll give you some big categories real quick that people should pay attention to. So, first of all, people are on blood thinners, you know, and there's a lot of people on blood thinners, you know, because if you have a coagulopathy or if you have a cardiovascular disease or you've had pulmonary emboli or anything else like that where, you know, you get platelets that are really overactive or your blood viscosity is too high. They're going to have to monitor something called an INR, especially if you're on a blood thinner where that controls or, or thins the blood. So there's a lot of nutrients, and I always tell students, don't do a ton of nutrition when you have these medications. Some of these medications like Coumadin or Warfarin or Heparin be very careful when you're using things. I mean, just simple vitamin K can defeat the purpose of the whole drug. So yeah. you want to be careful when somebody's taking blood thinners and then you're using nutrition. I, I always throw that out there. That's a, that's a good example. Another example is if somebody's had a trans, you know, a, a, like an organ transplant. Be very careful how healthy you make them, because if you increase their immune function, <laughs> you may put them into rejection or create some sort of compromise that has been created there so that they don't have graptose rejection. So yep. you want to make sure that you're not doing something there. The other drug cl- category that I say always be careful with is seizure medications because seizure medications have a very thin therapeutic margin in some of them. So be very careful with using nutrition in, in that aspect. Now, on the flip side of the coin, there's some nutrients that don't interact very very much at all. And some of the things I love are like glutathione. Uh, I love it with my chemotherapeutic patients because it doesn't have any interactions. Um, I love things like selenium for antibody reduction. Uh, things like alpha-lipoic acid, I love it, but alpha-lipoic acid also lover, uh, it lowers the efficacy of thyroid medications a small percentage. So people need to realize that there's good and there's bad with nutrition in regards to playing friendly with medication. And I think that the nutrition world has the responsibility to learn some of these things because people assume that nutrition is powerful, but yet, on the other hand, they say that it doesn't have anything negative that could possibly happen because it's just a nutrient. And that's just not true. And I think that this this is a really good point that you bring up, and that is learning more about nutrition interactions with everything is important if you're going to use nutrition. And I'm saying nutrition in the form of supplements, not necessarily the diet. But uh, these are so many good questions. I'm going to bring some of these up at the conference and, there's a lot of practitioners that just don't know these things.
0: And and the more I learn from experts like you, I've got to say the more ignorant I feel. But, <laughs> but anyway, I, I need to ask you, you mentioned um, anti-seizure medication, and that's a pretty well-known one in the medical circles that phenytoin, for instance, decreases folate, but then mm-hmm. when you give folate, that decreases phenytoin. So you've got to have this sure. real sort of um, gentle titration. How do you manage that? What sort of degrees of incremental dose? Do you use in things like MTHF, or indeed, do you find that interaction with MTHF, or do you only find that interaction with folic acid?
1: Well, one of the things that we'll do is, if somebody is having seizures, we don't want them to gain plasticity and efficiency. So I'll go ahead and let them take their medication and go to go to their dose, or or titrate up their dose to where they're not seizing. Because I don't want a couple of things. I do not want the seizures to gain efficiency. I do not want there to be cellular excitotoxicity. So take the medication and stop the seizure, and then I'm going to look for the genetic mutations in all of the MTHFR genes. And there's like four to five different ones that we look at. But we're also going to correlate that with your catechol methyltransferase genes, you know, that break down catecholamines. Because if you have a, a single nucleotide polymorphism in COMT, then you really are going to have a difficult time giving methylation if you have a methylation SNP. Right. So we give hydroxylation instead of methylation, and we have to titrate those up slowly because what they'll do is they'll lower that peak and trough, or that therapeutic margin of phenytoin, dilantin, or several other medications, uh, you know, that, that are used for seizures. So we'll get the seizure drug up, we'll get the levels where we want them, and then we'll monitor them in the blood. And then if we need to, we'll pull up hydroxy or methylfolate or cyanocobalamin and get those levels to where they need to be, and then monitor the drug in the blood, and eventually get the two balanced out, and then reduce the possibility that, like for instance, a methylation SNP will make homocysteine go up and then give you inflammation and vascular disease. So the two go together pretty well, but I always use the one that's the most powerful to get the person out of an acute situation where they may be you know, damaged.
0: So you need to attend the mind conference to really find out what you're going to be talking about there, because it's just way too involved. <laughs> <laughs> can I give a little, can I give a little hint for our listeners though? Um, you you talk about drug nutrient interactions. Um, you will be discussing those, but for our Australasian listeners, at least, um, please look up Yvonne Coleman's handbook. It's from nutritionconsultantsaustralia.com.au. And I love this lady, nu- Yvonne Coleman used to basically harangue the drug companies and get the clinical aspects of plasma binding, of nutrient deficiencies that they might be causing, um, nutrient Uh interactions, and she's tabled this in this massive folder. The clinical use of that is that you use these cards. So what shines is when you've got people on like two or three drugs and let's say there's an anti-seizure medication, they're on an oral contraceptive, and they might be on a statin, and you might see this clinical picture of, let's say, a B6 deficiency pulling out. And so then uh-huh. you look at the patient and they're presenting with neurasthesia. Yes. Um, so then you can go, aha, it may be that they might need some B6. And it, it's I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I love this handbook as a clinical tool. But you will be taking practitioners through the relevant ones for behavioral disorders in the Mind Conference, right?
1: Yeah, because uh, let's take B six for instance, or or P five P, or yeah. any of the methyl donors. Yeah, these are all cofactors for neurotransmitters. Yeah. So if you are losing a cofactor that makes, for instance, serotonin or dopamine or norepinephrine, and it's because they're on two or three different medications, You know any of the combinations that may be out there, you, know, you might need to start saying, look, because of the medications, you need these nutrients. And it's not that you don't need the drugs. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you're going to take them, at least take this nutrition so that you can negate the side effects that might be creating other problems. And there's nothing worse than Medical practitioners that give medicine, but pretend as if there is no possible way to have a nutrient depletion because of that,, yeah. and that's nothing against the medical profession. I mean, it's because i you know I'm part of that profession that that does these drugs but 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 I want to say to all the people out there that do these things please understand a little bit about nutrition. I mean, every medical practitioner needs to learn more about that. And then all the nutritional practitioners need to learn a little bit about pharmacology.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. So talking about, you know, the poster child, the damned poster child of behavioral disorder treatment in the medical word, and that would be methylphenidate or Ritalin. So what sort of nutrient interactions do you see glaringly obvious with this drug? Well, you know,
1: the thing I want to say about some of these stimulants um, and there's, and by the way, there's different categories. So you got methylphenidates and you got different salts and stuff like that. But, you know, the thing that is really, really interesting is the way they drive up dopamine and the way they create plasticity in the reward system of the brain. You know, these can end up leading to what we call hyperkinetic disorders. So I'll make this as simple as I can. A lot of these medications rev up the basal ganglia. And the part of the basal ganglia that activates your brain becomes very efficient. So we see a lot of kids start getting obsessive compulsive tendencies because they've revved up their brain so much, or they end up with a tick. And that could be, you know, because they've revved up their brain so much. Some even get tremors or acesthesia because they've revved up their brain so much. So one of the things that I'll talk about is here's these medications, and they may have an indication, but this is what it looks like when there is a side effect profile, and this is how you deal with that side effect profile. There needs to be serotonin to maybe negate the dopamine. There needs to be support maybe in the form of 5-hydroxytryptophan, and I like that better than just regular tryptophan. So I'll go through those mechanisms. And then talk about, you know, of course, these medications can deplete, you know, whenever we stress the liver, it can deplete different, you know, especially trace minerals and stuff like that. But really, what are these drugs doing to cause other symptoms? And then how do you counter some of them? Because there are some kids that maybe need to be medicated. I got, I got to be honest with you. There's, there's some kids out there that are out of control, or maybe they're bipolar, or maybe they're psychotic, and mm. they need the meds.
2: Mm.
1: But they need the nutrients more than ever if they're going to take these medications, because let's face it, some of these antipsychotics will make triglycerides go up, will make you obese, and will give you metabolic syndrome. So how do you deal with that? Well, it's all nutritional.
0: Yeah. So speaking on nutrition, um, Professor Robert Lustig will be speaking at the 2017 Biocytical Research Symposium. He's best known as one of the fathers of the anti-sugar movement. What's the takeaway message for clinicians about sugar with regards to behavioral disorders? And what practical tips can you give our listeners for their parents their patients and the reason i'm saying this is because the marketing message from these multinational high sugar food companies processed food companies is so strong how do you overcome that particularly when they taste so good
1: yeah well you know uh the the things that are usually the worst for you are the things that taste the best yeah you know sugar is I think that people underestimate the addiction of sugar. Mm. Number one, Um, you know, there's certain colas and certain soft drinks and stuff like that that you know people swear off like they do whiskey, and they end up just drinking it again. It's it's kind of a crazy thing, but there seems to be an addictive component to it. And then we've traced out some of the uh, of the neurological physiology of that, and it it really works just like some of the other addictive medications Mm. or recreational drugs, I guess you would say. And then sugar is pro-inflammatory. It's not just that sugar, you know, it's not just the calorie component to it. It's the inflammatory component to it. So when I've got somebody that's inflamed and they have a, you know, an inflammatory brain disorder or systemic inflammation, sugar's not always the best thing. After head injuries, sometimes they can't metabolically handle sugar. So, you know, we want to reduce that. And we're finding that the brain runs really pretty good on a higher protein diet and a higher fat diet than it does a sugar diet. So one of the things that we do to try to recover a brain that's been damaged or if there's autoimmunity is reduce sugar, reduce some of these high glycemic carbohydrates, increase proteins, and then give fats that are good and they can repair cell membranes and control the immune system. So anybody that really talks about these sugars this way, it's really interesting, and I don't know the gentleman that you're referring to, but it would be very interesting to read some of, some of his work.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. And indeed, that sugar film, to me, was an eye-opener.
1: You wouldn't even imagine how much sugar is just in a regular cola. I mean, we're talking teaspoons and teaspoons and teaspoons.
0: Well,
2: it's
1: changed just the way me and my family operate. I mean, we've done sugar fast several times just in my own house, and everybody goes crazy for a few days, and then they start to level out. It's because people have really almost created withdrawals when they get off of sugar. It's yeah. absolutely astounding. And we even see these withdrawals when people get off dairy, and we see these withdrawals when people get off certain grains like wheat mm. uh, because of the caseomorphins and the gluteomorphins. And then if you add sugar on top of that, uh, you can have somebody that can get pretty sick for about a week.
0: Yeah. Um, I was speaking years ago now with um, – uh, Dr. Rob Lobley, who runs an allergy centre at um, one of the hospitals in Sydney, very famous work, and he and his staff decided to get off coffee. And he said that it was the worst two weeks of headaches and scrappiness that they yeah. <laughs> they had amongst the staff. Um, but but I've got to ask, you know, we we speak about sugar, but indeed some of these low sugar, no sugar drinks can be just as damaging to people because of the sure. uh, the sweeteners that are in involved. Um, One of which concerns me is sucralose, which can change the microbiota. I don't know by how much. I don't know. Yeah. So what behaviors do you see in people who are on high amounts and what changes do you see when you take them off?
1: Well, first of all, some of these uh, like sucralose and fructose and high fructose corn syrup, it tricks the hypothalamus into really craving more sugar. Right. Um, and then some of these sugars go down to your micro, you know, your microbiome and your microbiota. And what it does is, is it causes overgrowth in a lot of these. And you know, when you get overgrowth, and then you feed the overgrowth, that overgrowth creates hydrogen and methane, and it can create constipation or diarrhea. Diarrhea makes more, uh, or is created more by hydrogen. And then when you have methane producers, it starts to constipate patients, but they get bloated. And then that bloating really opens the ileocecal valve and it allows the uh, you know the normal flora in the large intestine to come into the small intestine and colonize and you get SIBO. Now, the only problem with that is the SIBO creates this stuff called lithocolic acid and it really breaks down the the gap junctions between the cells and you can get a leaky gut from that kind of stuff. So these sugars, they they screw with your with your normal flora. They change your hypothalamic understanding of what you need and crave. And then, of course, if you have bad insulin or bad pancreatic function and you're diabetic or you get hyperglycemic, it just destroys your brain. Mm-hmm. You glycate in products. And as soon as your A1C goes up, you know that you're destroying neurological tissue and, you know, your eyes, your kidneys you name it you know all the stuff about diabetes so you know i I, by the time we end the conversation it's like well what's left to eat
2: (laughs) you
1: know it's and it's not like that it's just everybody needs to do things in moderation and the stuff that's really bad they need to get rid of and really the worst offender to me is the artificial sweeteners they're excitotoxins and you know i mean I, i have a deal with my patients that are neurological patients if you're taking in excitotoxins or artificial sweeteners if you don't quit then you're not a patient
0: yeah so that that you take the hard line, how do you swap them? What do you swap them to? You know, often they've got this sort of craving for something. So, what do you do? You, do you use a step down approach? Or
1: I may step them down to xylitol. You know, all of these things have you know a, a different negative component, but mm-hmm. some are just not as bad as others. But you know, I'll step them down to xylitol, then I may step them down to just some basic brown sugar, and then I may just step them down and say, look, why don't you just drop the simple sugars? go low glycemic and just eat foods that are you know that are good for you. And then sometimes I may test which foods they can tolerate and which foods they can't. And I do that with a with a testing panel that looks at cooked and uncooked food because once a food reaches about 118 degrees, the protein will denature and change. So cooked broccoli is going to be different than raw broccoli. Some people can eat one and not the other so when you put it all together, you can really get a very specific profile for somebody on what they can and can't eat, and uh, you know the simple form of sugar may need to be just completely reduced, especially if somebody's insulin resistant or something like that.
0: What about uh, the use of medium chain triglycerides, a sort of fat that's burnt like a carb? Yeah. Do you use that, and do you find quick? Do you find quick um, acceptance with somebody that's quote unquote addicted to sugar?
1: Are you talking about medium chain fats, like saturated fats, like uh, coconut oils?
0: It, MCTs, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I I tend to like them for brain health, and I tend to like them for antiviral uh, function. Um, and then I, I find that you know people will substitute pretty well because there is a little bit of that flavor there, and they hmm. get used to it. At yep. first, they may not like it, but we've replaced it in our house in a lot of situations, and. You know, we welcome it probably too much. You know, it still is a fat. Um, But really, when you look at the the newest literature on that, the dosages that are therapeutic are pretty high. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, hey, man, people can use certain types of fats all they want. When it comes to saturated fats, I don't do the long saturated fats or the hydrogenated fats. Obviously, those create massive heart disease. But when you get into the medium chain fats, they do a whole lot better, are really good for the brain. And boost the immune system. And in most physiological situations, they're very therapeutic.
0: Yes. So humans are great at blaming one cause for disease, but not, we're not really good at multifactorial etiologies, hence medical boxes. But when you're talking about behavioral issues that are extremely complex, what do you stratify or how do you stratify interventions? Do you always start with diet? do you always start with some quick um, maybe nutritional interventions or even supplemental interventions to get an effect and then work on the diet?
1: You know, so now you're talking about a real integrated practitioner, which is my dream of of teaching. I, I want to make people integrated. Um, and it's just, look, it doesn't mean that everybody has to, it's just my, it's just my teaching fantasy. So You know, when people come in to see me, I usually have really good intake forms that they kind of point me into the direction of maybe this system is breaking down or that system is breaking down. And, you know, sometimes I'll start with the brain first and I'll increase brain function. Then maybe say, hey, you know what? This is increased brain function. So now I can do some stuff with the guts because it'll work because the brain will let it. Sometimes I may do it backwards. Sometimes they're so infected that I know that no matter what I do, Until I resolve some of these infectious illnesses, they're going to be inflamed, and I'm just fighting inflammation that's never going to go away because they have infection there, so it's kind of like a Um, Band-Aid. Sometimes they have, you know, like an underlying metabolic disorder, like, you know, just old fashioned diabetes, and they're just not controlling it well. Or maybe they have thyroid disorders, which is about half of my practice, it seems like, these days. And so... I'll find what I think is the worst and the easiest and the central portion of their story. And then I'll work on one layer at a time. When I fix one layer, I'll get to the next. When I fix those two layers, then I'll go to the next. And as I start to build that picture and correct different parts, you can take a complex condition and make it not so complicated. And people start to see little changes and they notice things and you empower them. And I tell you, the one thing that I would say to everybody that's listening and if you educate your, you know, if you educate your patient about this stuff, they'll have patience with you, and they'll work with you, and they'll let you do your job.
2: Mm.
1: If you don't educate them, they won't understand the component of this. May take nine, ten, or eleven months, and they'll quit on you. And so, I think it's important that you have good communication, good education, get a good plan, and then do one thing at a time. If you try to do all of it at once you'll
0: have terrible compliance. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I was speaking with another uh, fertility practitioner, indeed an ob um, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, who has made videos on YouTube, Dr. Tash TV, she calls it. And the reason she did that was because you talk to patients about something that you know very well as a clinician. They've never heard of. This speak is alien yep. to them. So they, go, they walk out the door. You've just said leaky gut or, you know, um, bacterial translocation or intestinal permeability, and they go home and tell their husband, wife, partner, and go, it was, I I got holes in my gut. <laughs> I got, you know, That's they thick, don't yeah. know. They that don't know. terrible. terrible. They, so, is, they the, think they're going to die. Yeah, so the reason she did this was so that patients can learn and relearn and relearn until they get it, until they get the message. And I think it's so important when you talk about Giving patients something that they can take away to have to learn from, not just communicating right there in the clinic, but something that they can take home and have, and you know revisit, um, so that they can, as you say, you know improve their compliance, but also understand why they're actually visiting you in the first place.
1: It's so it's so bad that we've really utilised something called a health coach, where when you leave, I put you in contact with a health coach, and that person will actually take you shopping. Teach you how to cook. Wow. And all the things that I don't do well, which is break it down in the most absolute simplest forms, I've I've got somebody who will do it for me that will actually go to the store and say, I know you have no idea where to start. Let me show you how to do this. And when you do that, we've noticed big shifts in 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 compliance and people actually doing things. Everybody wants to do it. They just don't really quite get it and know how.
2: So you
1: know, we love these health coaches. I mean, and, and they're not diagnosing things. They're not doing anything other than what we tell them to, but they know how to relate because that's what they do. Mm. And, you know, my wife is learning how to be a health coach right now, and I and I love it because she's going to add a dimension to care. And I've already got another health coach that I use as well, and they do things that I – that I just simply don't do, and they do it so well, the patients end up loving them more than me. (laughs)
0: I've got to say, like... It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to say, like, looking at your bio and what you've done and looking at the topics that you'll be covering at the MIND conference in May in Sydney 2017, every Australian practitioner who wants to treat behavioural disabilities disorders must attend this. They'll just be taking away so much. But I would also urge them to look at some of the websites that we'll put up on FX Medicine for you. because I think you'll take away a lot from that. And I just can't thank you enough for taking us through what is truly the tip of the iceberg of your expertise. I'd love to have you back on and, and look at um, other areas of your expertise, like how you intervene with things like PTSD.
1: Yeah, anytime, man. I mean, that's that's obviously a complicated situation, but you know, in America, it's very real, obviously, from the effects of war and you know, we have so many people coming back and they're supposed to be normal because they didn't get shot or killed, but they have this silent, real, you know, just real disaster going on. And that is flashbacks or they can't sit still or they have just, they've just changed. And so that has become something that is kind of become a passion of ours. It's very difficult to deal with. And I got to tell you, the emotional component that you put into to helping somebody with PTSD is is it's an investment for a clinician. I mean you have to put a lot into it yourself. Um, you know, we did some PTSD work and I felt like at the end of it I had PTSD also and and I say that without being sarcastic. It's it's that intense. Wow. Um but I, I gotta tell you, it's there's people that have PTSD because of their life or because of poverty or because they're trying to feed their family or they're overworked or they hate their job or you know, a number of reasons, and, and I don't like to just dull out that diagnosis, but we live in a different world, yeah. and things are changing, and so we're going to see it more.
0: Brandon, Brock, thank you so much for taking us through um, what is a very complex issue dealing with behavioral disorders. So I really can't thank you enough for taking us through some of the clinical aspects and practical interventions that you um, sh- sh- impart with your patients. Um, to help them lead a better life. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, you bet. Thanks for having me on. And you guys are doing a great job by spreading the word and integrating. And if I can ever help you out, please let me know.
0: This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends. FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information.